Well, we are glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, it's a good thing it's fall back and not spring forward, because I'm sure some of you would not be here if we were in the spring part of the year. Um, and we may see some people trickle in here in a couple minutes because they're an hour early, um, but that's okay. We'll just tell them to come on in. Um, I, I grew up in Indiana, and we never did this spring forward, fall back thing, and it was so great. And then I went to college and lived in Illinois, and it's like the dumbest idea. I, uh, I, unless you're a farmer, and then you probably love it. So um, this morning, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. It's what we'll be looking here in just a few moments. It's been interesting as we kind of have walked through some of these texts. We've noticed that, that the words Jesus use, uses, sometimes we're not sure what to do with. And so we're reminded again and again that as we read these texts and we try to understand them in light of the 21st century, what does it mean for us today? How do we understand what these teachings would have meant to them in that day, and how does it apply to us today? And so I, I think it's fitting that today's text is one of the ones that we probably should wrestle with, and we should leave here maybe still not sure what it is that we're to understand from it. Um, as we look at this text in just a moment, uh, it, it begins, as we'll see as, as the text last week did, he begins with this phrase. You've heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, you've heard what the scriptures have said. You know what the law of Moses is. You know what we have understood the law to be. But I say to you, and then he changes the whole understanding of whatever the law may be. And you'll find he does this a lot in the book of Matthew. And in fact, he probably did it much in his teachings. And this is one of the things that, that so many of the Jewish leaders couldn't stand about Jesus. Because he began to teach in ways... It would transform their whole understanding of the way God was at work in the world. And it would shape them in such different ways that they didn't know how to handle that or what to even say. And that's our text this morning. So if you'd stand as we read, beginning with verse 38 from Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm giving Marge a raise. You know, I, I guess if we were to look at this text, we probably need to do it in three parts. And we've talked briefly about this idea of, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But then he goes on to say these next words that, that we find in, in numerous scriptures. He says, I've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if, if someone pokes out your eye, you can poke out their eye. If they knock out your tooth, you can knock out their tooth. I mean, it, it seems like to make some sense. And, and, it, and this isn't a new saying. That, this saying Jesus mentions isn't, isn't something new. There's this code of Amurabi. Um, it was a Babylonian leader. And, and this code was that, basically it was this idea that vengeance couldn't rule. This idea that if someone did something to you, you weren't allowed to, to take it beyond what was reasonable. And so they came up with this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's fascinating because, you know, we didn't often see people losing an eye for an eye or a tooth. It didn't happen all that often. But we've heard the stories of people like the Hatfields and the McCoys, um, 
You've probably heard of the island of Corsica in Italy and how, how the retributions and the vengeance that runs rampant there is so prevalent and is still to this day, it continues. And if you were to talk to some of these people, they couldn't tell you where the fight began. They have no idea. They just know we don't like those people, and so if we can kill them, that's a great thing. There's no reason for it, and so the, and so the retaliation, the vengeance goes beyond what the initial offense was. And so this law came about as this idea that, that no justice, no vengeance should go beyond what was inflicted the first time. So if I take your goat, you can't kill me. You can just take my goat. Okay, that makes some sense. But it was this law, basically, that was known as the law of tit for tat. In fact, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus 21, and it says this, But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Again in Leviticus, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And then Deuteronomy, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's just three examples in the Old Testament. We could probably find others where it's implied. This idea that if someone does something to you, you're allowed to do the same thing back so long as you do nothing more severe than they did to you. I've got to tell you, it still puts us in an interesting position that, that, it, that if we're living lives, that everything about our life is about retaliation and about getting even. At first glance, we see this law and we say, well, you know, it actually kept people from making it worse. Very true. But Jesus turns everything upside down when he says this. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone strikes you in one cheek, then give them the other also. And that would have been insulting because this idea is there's no way, there's no way you could smack someone, especially with the same hand, on both cheeks, without using the back of your hand. And in the Jewish world, if you were to smack someone with the back of your hand, it was the biggest insult you could give them. It was, it was saying you were worthless, you were, there's no value in you, uh, I'd have no respect for you. Jesus says, listen, if they smack you on one side, just turn the other one as well. You know, it's, uh, it's hard for us to know what to do with this text. Because often what would happen when this idea of an eye for an eye didn't did ever really happen in that way because what, what would happen was you would pay money. There would be the injustice of the injury and so they would pay you for that amount and then there would be the time lost at work and they would pay you for that amount and there would be the, the lack of dignity in the community and they would pay you for that amount. And so what often happened was this law, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was rarely, if ever, enacted because it would find a way to, to you would pay for it. So what he's saying here is, listen, you've heard it said, you have this right to get retribution, to get vengeance, to get even. But I'm telling you, you don't have that right. You've heard it said that if someone does something to you, you can do it back. But, but I'm saying to you, that's not okay. I love the way William Barclay puts it. He says this, he says, in understanding this law, or so then, ancient ethics were based on the law of tit for tat. It's true that the law was a law of mercy. It is true that 
It was a law for a judge, not for a private individual. It's true that it was never literally carried out. It's true that there were accounts of mercy speaking at the same time. But Jesus obliterated the very principle of that law because retaliation, however controlled and restricted, has no place in the Christian life. And it's interesting because even in this law, it was never meant to be done individually. It was always meant to be before a judge that you didn't get to decide if someone stole something, you got to steal something back. You didn't get to decide that. A judge still had to decide it. But often people would find themselves going, you know, I don't care what the judge says. I'm going to do this myself. But then when he turns the text, I, I guess I should say it this way. When I was... When I had been working in Mantino for a couple years, um, I started getting connected with the area high school and the coaches and the teachers. And so there was a group of guys that played basketball on Friday mornings. And so I started playing basketball with those guys on Friday mornings. And so there was an assistant principal, Randy Forden. I'll tell you his name because he wouldn't care if I shared the story. Randy was a guy that lacked basketball skill, but he made up for it in brute force. He fouled you the whole time you played. And I'll never forget the time. I, I'd probably been playing there for three or four weeks, and I was dribbling the ball up the floor, and he's just putting his elbow and pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, he'd been doing it all morning, and I couldn't take it any longer, and I put a forearm in his chest and knocked him to the floor. And I felt so bad about that later because I thought, here I am. The guy's this young associate pastor at the church down the road trying to make connections with guys, and you push a guy to the floor with your elbow in his chest. That's probably not a good way to do that. So the next week we go to play, and I, I walked up to Randy and said, hey, Randy, I need to apologize to you. Um, you know, yeah, you were fouling me last week, but I didn't need to, that, that's my fault. That was inappropriate. And he looked at me, and he goes, no, that wasn't inappropriate. He goes, actually, I've got more respect for you now because you did push me over. He said, I was fouling you like crazy. <laughs> and that's the problem. Because he really did have more respect for me after that. Because the values of the world say, yeah, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But the law of Christ says, no, that's not how it works. That's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you something so much different than I'm calling you to, to turn the other cheek. I'm saying when he hits you, you let him hit you on the other side. I gotta tell you, we don't like where this leads. We don't like what this implies. Because he goes on to say, if if someone asks you for your tunic which I don't know how to say this nicely. It's basically their underwear. Um, even the poorest person would have had at least two tunics. And he says, no, no, don't just give me your tunic, but give me your cloak as well. And see, so your cloak would have been the garment you wore over your tunic. Your, your cloak would have been what you use as a blanket at night or as a pillow. Your cloak, you would have probably only had one. Only the richest of people would have had more than one cloak. And Jesus says, listen, if they ask for your tunic, which means nothing to you, and you give that, don't just give your tunic, but give your cloak as well. That's a form of life for you. I'm asking you to give them something that, that sustains you and give it up anyway. And then if someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too. And at first glance, we're going, well, why would someone ask you to walk a mile with them? It's a great question. I don't really know. But it's probably not going to happen that way for us. In fact, what we would understand it is this, that if we remember even the story of Jesus as he was led to the cross, they grabbed the guy Simon from the, from the gallery and made him carry the cross for Jesus. 
See, the Romans, when they would conquer a place, they had this right that, that if they were to carry something, if a courier was coming through, they could grab a person and say, hey, listen, I need you to carry this package for me for this next mile. And they had the right legally to do that, and you had no say. You would just respond, okay, I'll carry it for you. So what Jesus is saying is this, if, if the courier, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I need you to carry this for a mile for me, you're saying, okay, you know what, not only will I carry it for a mile for you, but I'll even go further, I'll carry it for two miles for you. And this is the, the worst part about it for us, is that I'll do it with a smile on my face. In other words, you've heard it said that, that if you have to go with someone a mile, but I'm telling you, make it two. I can't begin to understand what it would look like that, that if we were to turn the cheek to say, hey, you've insulted me as much as you can, but I want you to insult me just a little bit more. I've gone one mile with you, but just so you know who, that I'm a, I'm a Christ follower, I would like to go too. Would you like a drink? In other words, we begin to see this picture that Jesus says, you've heard it said that you have individual rights, that you are guaranteed these rights, but I say to you, if you choose to follow me, then you lay your rights down at the cross just like I did. This is a revolutionary way of thinking. We don't talk like this. We don't live like this. We don't act like this. It's the reason why I knock a guy down playing basketball. He says, hey, no, I have more respect for you. He shouldn't. Jesus begins to reshape the way they understand what's going on. And what do we do with the words of Jesus? How do we understand God in the midst of this? And so I want to reference John chapter 14. And you can turn there if you want. I'll give you just a moment to do so if you've got your Bibles out. But John chapter 14, starting with verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, and who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in, the, in my name, and I will do it. I have to tell you, this text should shape our understanding of who Jesus is. It should shape our understanding of the way we understand the Sermon on the Mount. It should shape us in some pretty incredible ways that we really should not know what to do with. What I mean is this. Jesus says pretty clearly, you can say nothing about God you can't say about me. You can say nothing about God you can't say about me. So when I teach you, those are the words of God. 
So the way I live, that's the way God is calling you to live. So the way I embody the words of my Father are the way you are to live. In other words, this sermon isn't just a glimpse in the person of Jesus. It's a glimpse into the heart of God. It's a glimpse into a picture that we begin to understand what it looks like. In fact, this verse ends with, if someone asks you for something, give more. Remember, we've talked before about this idea that in the Old Testament, they would, they would every seven years, they would clean up all debts. Everything, all, all, all debts were paid. So what would happen is if you were going to lend money, you, would, you wouldn't want to lend in year six. Because you're not going to make anything. In fact, you're not even going to break even. Year one, you were happy to lend, no problem, I will give you money. Because I know in these seven years, I'll make my money back and probably then some interest. But if I lend to you in year six, that's no good. And Jesus says, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He's saying, uh, you've heard it said that, that you're to give to the person in need. But I'm saying to you, you better do it with a willful spirit. Because that's the way I am, and that's the way my Father is. And if you want to be a part of me, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then this is how God functions in the world. This is how I function. This is how you are called to function. You know, I I guess I want to say this. I think sometimes we have screwed up the picture of Jesus. I don't know how to say that nicely. Um, We have made Jesus look like a white, middle-class American. He might have a beard. Might be about my age. Not saying I look like Jesus, nothing at all, but I'm just saying if we put a picture on him, we begin to make him look like someone we know. And we forget that we are created in his image. And, and the funny thing is, we've probably reversed that and said, God, it's amazing. We, you look a lot like we think you do. And we begin to reshape this image of who Jesus is, and he begins to look a lot like how we want him to look. If we come from from middle-class backgrounds, he begins to look a lot like a middle-class American. If we come from, from Europe, he looks a lot like a European. If we come from Mexico, he looks a lot like a Mexican. We begin to make Jesus look like how we want him to look, and we forget he was a Middle Eastern man that led a revolution that has changed the face of the entire world. We give him our values, but in fact, it's his values we should embody. My favorite line is, God made us in his image, but we made him look like us. We return the favor. So what would happen if we began to, to understand what Jesus really looked like? I could show you, I, I love, I, I saw someone this week do this illustration. He showed a bunch of different pictures of Jesus, and he talked about what Jesus looked like, and it was um, pictures from throughout history, and some are more more present than others, and so he had all these names for Jesus, and they were kind of mocking the pictures a little bit. But in other words, what we saw in all the pictures was the same thing again and again. That we've reshaped who Jesus was. We've reshaped what he looks like, what he stood for, and we take his words and we say, well, here's what he said, but this is what he really meant. I've got to tell you, that, that worries me. That worries me in so many ways because we've done it. In, in fact, I love a friend of mine, Scott, when he was preaching. He, he tells this story. He was in Arkansas preaching this revival. And, and uh, he was there and, you know, he said, I'm in the sanctuary. It's the last day of this weekend revival, like Wednesday to Sunday. And he said, I, 
he said, I've been giving him my best stuff. And he said, I'm ending on a, a sermon out of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're, we're, I'm, doing, I'm giving the best sermon I had. And I'm, I'm preaching. I'm spitting at the mouth. And I'm foaming. And he said, I'm getting all excited. And they're saying amen. And I'm saying, Jesus says, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And give him your cloak as well. And people are getting blessed. And they're raising their hands. And they're getting excited. He said, afterward, I get done and I go to the nursery because our wife was pregnant and so she had stayed home, but I took our, our son with me and so Caleb was in the nursery. And I said, well, how was he? And she said, oh, he's such a sweet little boy. You're Caleb, he's just a sweet little boy. Said, well, okay, well, how was he? She said, well, we had a little bit of a problem. So as every, every day I go, oh no, not my kid. I do that every week when I find out how my kids did in the nursery. <laughs> and she says, yeah, there's this little boy in here who's kind of a bully. And he kept pushing your son and hitting him a little bit. And I just told him, Caleb, you just hit him right back. And he said, you don't get the sermon in here, do you? Um, <laughs> because that's what we do. We say, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And we tell our kids, don't hit first, but if they hit, you hit them back. And this creates the conflict we live in. You see, we read the words of Jesus, and there better be tension in our lives, because I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I use the illustration of playing basketball, because I was too scared to go with anything deeper than that. Because all of a sudden, it starts to hit home in some various ways. If we're called to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give our cloak as well, we don't know what to do with that. We find ourselves in position asking questions, well, well, Jesus, I think he would do this, but he says this, so how do we balance this out? How do we live in the world we live in? And I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. If you don't know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the quick story of him is this, that he was a, he was a German theologian in German Nazi, Germany. And as he was living his life there, that Hitler began to oppress the people more and more, and so Dietrich didn't know what to do with this, and he was invited to go speak around the world. He had people even here in America said, stay with us, Dietrich. Don't go back home. Just stay here. Just keep, keep teaching what you're doing. You're doing God's work. And, and Dietrich kept saying, but, but someone has to say the truth in Germany, or they're never going to hear it. So the seminary he taught, they wrecked it, they destroyed it. They, he eventually was in prison because he had tried to conspire against Hitler and and he was wrestling with all these things about what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. And he wrote much of what was his best stuff from prison. And Dietrich's writing on this very passage, and he says this, that, that when we look at evil in the world, the only way we can radically stand up to it is to recognize what Christ did on the cross. Is it, is it naive to say that Jesus embodied what he calls us to? Is it naive to say that Jesus in his love for us said, you know what, I'm going to walk up to, I'm going to carry my own cross. I'm going to find myself dying rather than fighting evil the way it's always been fought. And he walks himself to the cross. And Bonhoeffer himself walked himself to a noose. Could have run away. But he sought a way to fight injustice with the justice that Christ speaks about. And it looks so much different than the world around us. And this is the challenge to us. We don't overcome evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. 
We take the words of Jesus seriously when he says, take up your cross daily. To follow me is to follow him. And in fact, of the, of the apostles, we can count Judas if we want, you know. Um, but of the other 12, when Matthias came in, 11 of the 12 were martyred, were killed for the faith. Peter, Peter was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way as Christ. John is the only one that lived to die of old age. To follow Christ means to set, set aside our rights and our, our responsibilities. It means to set aside our, our right for the rights of the kingdom. And they do look different than the world we live in. And this is the revolutionary message of Jesus, to, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give our cloak as well. Those are words we do not hear. Those are words we do not do well. Those are things that it's tough to embody because they go opposite of everything we see day in and day out. And I have to tell you, what do, that tension, the tension that we live in, that tension, I, I don't know. I don't have a great answer for you this morning, but, but I know this, if we stop living in the tension, then we've, then we've missed it. If there isn't tension in our life because we're not sure how to be in the world but, but not be of the world, if there's not tension in our life because we're not sure if we're turning the other cheek, if there's not tension because we're not sure if we're taking off our cloak and going the extra mile, if there's not tension in there, then we really have missed what Christ is calling us to. And in that tension is where we live. I wish it was really clear cut. I wish it was always black and white, but I'm, I'm afraid sometimes the more I understand about who Jesus is, the more I understand that it isn't always black and white, that there is this tension. And so how do we then live in this world but not be of it? How do we turn the other cheek? How do we go the extra mile? How do we carry our cross daily? Part of the way we do it is we come to the table together. We come to this table remembering that Christ not only died for us, but he rose from the dead. And we come recognizing that he was a suffering Messiah, and we are called to suffer with him. We eat of this meal as a reminder that Jesus, what he did, is enough. That his kingdom doesn't resemble all the kingdoms of this world, and it won't function the same way. We eat this meal as a reminder that his blood was spilled for us. We partake of this meal as a reminder that, that he used the words, you've heard it said, but I say to you, no longer will the world be defined as it's been defined before, but eat this meal with me. Follow me on this journey to the cross, because I promise you, it's not easy. In fact, it's, it's radically revolutionary. And it better be an adventure. Because when we make it anything less than that, we've made Jesus much more mild than he's ever been. Because the Christian faith should be something that's full of risk. It should scare us to death at times. And anything less than that probably isn't the real thing. So we're going to partake of this meal and then we'll sing another song together, but... But we come up to this meal recognizing that Christ has made all things new. He is making all things new. He is using us to further his kingdom in this world to transform this place. And if the Lakes Community Church, if we, if we embody that, 
And even the Muskegon community won't know what to do with the people who are so transformed by the work of God and his grace. We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the way you were at work in the life of this church. We thank you for the way you are faithful to us, that you call us to be so different than the people we come into contact with, that you desire for us to be a transformed people. Help us to live in this tension of what it looks like to live for you, but yet at the same time, we're not sure how to do that because we don't know how to not embody the culture at large, the values of the world that we see. Help us to know what it looks like to be your people who are faithful to you in the midst of persecution. Help us to take up our cross daily, go the extra mile, to turn the other cheek. Help us to not be a people who seek vengeance. But we recognize that in the end, that your justice is what reigns. You're a God that desires mercy, not sacrifice. Because your son was the sacrifice for us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. This morning, we've asked some to come help with communion. If you would make your way forward. We'll do this the way we normally do. We'll have you head down these two outside sections and then come back through the middle of your seats. But in a moment, I'll invite you in just a moment. But we remember this morning that as we take these elements, there's no special semblance to a piece of bread and a little bit of juice. But what they represent is, is Christ giving love for us. What they represent is his desire for the kingdom of God to look so different in this world that we gather on a regular basis to remember the one who came before us, the one who is the Father, the one who invites us to see what God looks like in this world. We'll say a quick prayer for the elements, uh, and then we'll invite you to come forward. Father, we thank you for these elements that we are about to partake. Pray that they would be grace for us this day, that they would sustain us, that you would work in us in powerful ways. And it's our hope and prayer, Father, that you would transform us to be the image that you desire for us to be. And we know that we see the Father in the Son. And may your Spirit guide this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to come.